Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by State Historian Emeritus Walt Woodward and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. And I'm Mary Donahue for Connecticut Explored. This podcast is part of our 20 for 20 Innovation in Connecticut History series. My guest today, Dr. Jack Doherty, is professor and director of the Educational Studies Program at Trinity College. He is a Connecticut Explored 20 for 20 Innovation in Connecticut History honoree for his work in On the Line, How Schooling, Housing, and Civil Rights Shaped Hartford and Its Suburbs, a digital open access book in progress. It's available online. We'll have the link in our show notes for this episode. The book combines historic narrative, interactive maps, and video interviews to tell the story of schooling and housing boundaries that really shaped American metropolitan life during the last century, along with civil rights struggles of families and activists to cross over, redraw, or erase those powerful lines. In this episode, We're going to uncover the story of how Connecticut passed legislation that allowed zoning and how West Hartford became the first town to adopt zoning regulations. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Mary. I think most of us have heard the phrase, it's not zoned for that, as in, can I build a factory next to my house? Or can I put a trailer park in my North 40? But we may not understand the difference between the town's master plan land use requirements, and zoning regulations. I know, it sounds hairy, right? Don't worry, keep listening. Let's break that down. The state of Connecticut mandates that every 10 years, each community adopt its master plan as a blueprint for its aspirations for growth, preservation, and sustainability. The master plan details in broad terms how land can be used, land use, for housing, retail, transportation, education, and recreation. It also identifies places like environmentally sensitive areas like wetlands that shouldn't be built on, as well as historically significant areas like historic districts, whose architectural character should be safeguarded. But it's the town's zoning regulations that really pinpoint exactly what can be constructed and where. But zoning has a dark side. Jack, what is exclusionary zoning? Sure. Well, when we think about zoning, any type of zoning is, like you said, a, a government land use rules. And there's always progressive uh, parts of zoning, uh, uh, like you say, uh, we don't want to have, um, we may have rules that say you can't build a, a factory next to a childcare center. Exclusionary zoning is when governments use those rules about what can be built where to favor more expensive single family home construction, often ways that makes it require larger amounts of land per family. So it's a way of uh, that Connecticut communities and others elsewhere have kept lower income families out of certain neighborhoods. Can you tell us what you found out about a Jewish grocer and the origins of zoning in Connecticut? Sure. We're here in West Hartford, uh, uh, where we both live, and um, I was intrigued by the story of Jacob Goldberg. I had found out that just to sort of a reference to something that um, back in the early 1920s, Jacob Goldberg, who was in Hartford at the time with a grocery store, was trying to build a, a new grocery store in West Hartford. And it actually, that location is uh, right around the corner from where I live. I was intrigued by this story because Jacob Goldberg's first attempt to build his grocery store was turned down. The town of West Hartford said, you can't build that grocery store. Even though Goldberg had hired a well-known architect 
and his design followed all of the building code rules in West Hartford at that time. The town pointed to neighbors who didn't want a store or didn't want Goldberg, one or the other, in their neighborhood and told Goldberg, you can't have your building permit. Goldberg and his allies got an attorney, took the uh, town to court, and pressured the town into re releasing and letting them have that building permit. Right afterwards, and all during this, uh, West Hartford town leaders created zoning rules, which were brand new around the United States at this time, to try to have more control over who they were going to let build what types of buildings inside West Hartford. Tell us a little bit about your thoughts about whether there's a certain amount of anti-immigrant feeling here because Goldberg was from an Eastern European immigrant family or anti-Semitism, or is it just that they didn't want commercial on their corner? What do you think? Um, looking at this and all the evidence and trying to piece this together, it's very clear to me that both of these things are true. And sometimes it's, life is not an e history is not an either or, but it's actually a both. The early 1920s, it's a period of intense anti-immigrant fervor among uh, uh, established whites in the United States and in places like West Hartford. There are, are rules, uh, there are, are, are policies trying to keep uh, immigrants um, and Jewish and, uh, Jewish immigrants in particular out of certain areas, out of occupations, um, out of climbing up the social ladder. And at the same time, um, West Hartford, a very small town at this time, just on the cusp of it becoming a suburb, was having a tremendous building boom. Lots of real estate developers were seeing opportunities to create more housing, more commercial areas in West Hartford, and residents at that time wanted to keep their established uh, sort of like small rural farm-like mentality to large parts of the town. So I think both things are true in the early 1920s. So Goldberg fought back and as you said, he hired a really sophisticated local architect of uh, name of uh, Marchant, William Marchant, who had actually designed several of the civic buildings in West Hartford, like schools and town hall. So he hired the best architect he could find, somebody that would be a recognized name in West Hartford, but he still ends up going to court. What it, happens then? Yeah, it's fascinating. And you, thank you, Mary, because you were the one who tipped me off to the, um, to the architect in particular with your architectural history background. So even though Goldberg has lined up all the cards, he's following all the rules he can in 1923, he is denied his building permit initially, he gets his attorneys and other allies, he threatens West Hartford, goes to court, and he eventually gets West Hartford to concede that they're going to let him build what became the Kingswood Market. Um, and that establishment um, and a number of couple small businesses attached upstairs um, lasted for decades up until the recent uh, 2000s or so. Here's what the Hartford Current said about the success of Goldberg's legal case, which of course he won. Legal fight for store and exclusive section. Jacob Goldberg brings proceedings against West Hartford building inspector who refuses permit. Papers will be served today upon the building inspector, Andrew Larson of West Hartford, in a proceeding commanding the building uh, inspector either issue to Jacob Goldberg of this city a permit to erect a store building on his land at the southwest corner of Ardmore Road and Farmington Avenue in the town of West Hartford, or show cause for failure to do so at a hearing on the first Tuesday of March. The proceedings are the latest step in the efforts of Goldberg to erect a store building on the corner in one of West Hartford's exclusive residential sections and the battle of the other property owners in the vicinity to prevent it. 
At a hearing before the building inspector on January 24th, at which a score of property owners in the Ardmore Road section appeared and protested, the building inspector listened to both sides of the controversy and then refused to grant the building permit, but he was then directed by the court to issue it, February 7th, 1923. During that time, uh, town leaders, and one that comes to mind here is Josiah Woods, is a town council member, they get a hold of ideas that are coming from places in New York City and other places that are getting them to think about how can we prevent uh, conflicts like this again, how can we exert more control over what land is going to be uh, used for in the future of West Hartford as this very early suburb is turning into a much more popular destination for, for home builders. And um, the town hires a, a special consultant um, from Cleveland, Ohio, drafts up a very um, elaborate for its time plan of zoning. The West Hartford Zoning Report of 1924 lays out the rules that West Hart eventually adopted. West Hartford came up with money to support the idea of creating a zoning ordinance pretty fast. Here's what the Hartford Current said on August 9, 1923. The headline is, Money for West Hartford Zoning. Finance Board Approves Commission Appropriation for Expenses. And here's how they describe the project. A large part of the $1,600 will be expended in fees to Edward M. Bassett, a lawyer of New York City, and a council of the New York Zoning Commission who has consented to come to West Hartford to instruct the new commission in the proper method of procedure. Mr. Bassett has served under Herbert Hoover on a national zoning committee and is familiar with zoning problems in various cities throughout the country. His charge to the town will be $100 a day and expenses. At first glance, you might say, oh, these look like fairy innocuous rules. But it's all about, zoning is all about the details of what controls people have and how they try to use land use to economically segregate different areas. So if you look at a, a zoning map from uh, 1924, this is West Hartford's first zoning map, um, and it's actually, West Hartford's the first community in, in, in Connecticut to adopt zoning. They uh, were one of the few towns in Connecticut to get the state legislature to give them authority to do zoning early in the 1920s. West Hartford drew lines that sort of set aside huge chunks of the north and the central portions of West Hartford into what they called zones A and B. About 85% of the town was zoned into sections A and B. And the rules were set up there um, so that you had to have at least, at this time, 9,000 square feet of land to build a one-family home. Now that actually sounds modest by today's standards. We actually have some communities in Connecticut that require um, 40 to 80,000 square feet of land for a one-family home. But in West Hartford, it's one of the first exclusionary rules. They're explicitly trying to make it, in the words of the report, uneconomic to build two families or three-family, or apartment homes in large portions of West Hartford. And that's what makes it exclusionary, because when the rules are set up to only favor higher-income families, that's you're effectively setting in stone 
who's going to become the citizens of West Hartford for the next several decades. You know, I was looking at the photos, and by the way, your article, the six-page article in the spring issue of Connecticut Explored in 2023 is available on our website, so you could actually listen to the podcast and be able to see the illustrations if you go to our website. They show several apartment houses that they consider to be uh, less, actually warned against, less advantageous for the town to have, and they're certainly prestigious apartment buildings all along Farmington Avenue in the Hart on the Hartford side of the line. But one that interested me is one that is called the Packard. And when that apartment complex was built, it had huge 10 room apartments in it. It was trying to get people who of real money who could afford amenities. It had a, it had maids rooms, it had tiled bathrooms, it had utilities, it had a full sleeping porch, which is like an outside screened patio porch. It, it just had, it really had a lot of amenities and their goal uh, in about 1919 is to really get those high affluent condo type uh, today buyers to come to the Packard apartments. So I don't think they would have ever thought of themselves as a low level, you know, uh, kind of property that you wouldn't want in your town. So when I saw the Packard apartment buildings illustrated in 1924 as something to be warned against, it really intrigued me. So even if it was for this upscale market, they still didn't want apartment houses. Isn't this fascinating? This is like what the, you know, what history can show us. It's like, uh, the strange logic of the time, but it made sense. Um, we're looking at pictures here of of uh, some um, high-end apartment buildings on Farmington Avenue and some middle-end apartment buildings on Farmington Avenue that were built before the zoning laws. They're grandfathered in, as we say. And the, um, the 1924 report on West Hartford's zoning report, it, quote, warns against, quote, large apartment houses are spreading further west along Farmington Avenue. There's clearly language in this uh, uh, zoning uh, report that says, certainly connotates that there's a fear of high density housing that's coming in, creeping up from Hartford into West Hartford. And this is what the West Hartford residents at the time certainly embraced. They found a way to uh, restrict where those um, apartment buildings could be built in the future to a very tiny little strip of land. This was known as Zone E, and it basically it went down Farmington Avenue from the West, from the Hartford line down to West Hartford Center. But right around this time as well, there's actually West Hartford is actually enacting for a period of time uh, in the late 20s rules that would actually prohibit any apartment buildings from being built anywhere in West Hartford, even in the zoned area. So it's fascinating that, just as you said, Mary, even though in the 1910s some apartment buildings were being built as a way to attract wealthier uh, renters into West Hartford, the sentiment that takes over by the town leaders in the 1920s is single-family housing. Uniformity of single-family housing, not even mixing together two-family or three-family housing with single-family housing, keeping those separate. And that's what really we need to see in this report is an effort to sort of like economically segregate these neighborhoods. They had tiny little sections of West Hartford that could be multifamily housing, but they were relegated to areas that might have already been developed or relegated areas right up to the Hartford border. We'll be back in a minute with my guest. The Litchfield Historical Society's newest exhibit, To Come to a Land of Milk and Honey, Litchfield and the Connecticut Western Reserve, opens April 21, 2023. Learn about this land in present-day Ohio that was reserved by Connecticut after the American Revolution for its continued use and settlement. 
exhibit supported by a grant from Connecticut Humanities. Learn more and plan your visit at litchfieldhistoricalsociety.org. I'm Kathy Hermas, the publisher of Connecticut Explored Magazine. I hope you're enjoying our award-winning podcast, Grading the Nutmeg. If you would like to help us stay on the air, please consider donating to our endowment. All donations over $250 and under $10,000 between now and April 30th will be matched by 50% by the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving. If we raise $5,000 by April 30th through donations of any amount, we'll get an extra $1,000 from the Zacks Family Foundation. Just go to our website at ctexplore.org and click the Donate tab and then go to Endow Hartford 21. We're very grateful for your support. Thanks and enjoy the rest of the podcast. You certainly see that when you drive through West Hartford, if you go from east to west, even on Farmington Avenue or Park Road, for example, or even New Britain Avenue, you kind of see almost a drop-off where all of a sudden the triple leckers stop, the two-family houses stop, and it just becomes the single-family home. And it, once you're aware of that invisible line, which you're the name of your volume alludes to across the line. Once you're aware of where that line happened in 1924, you really, you can see it all over town. And Mary, if I can on this one here, I think that's why we needed to write about this and make these invisible lines and the stories behind them more visible. Because it's very common today, if um, uh, younger people are walking around places like West Hartford, it's very common to think, oh, why are the more expensive houses here and here and here? people often assume must be the market, must be just the real estate market, or people are willing to pay more to build more expensive homes there. And that's not the only driver here. The town of West Hartford had rules that limited who could build what where. They only wanted the higher end single family homes in large portions of West Hartford. Now, in some ways, that kind of makes sense if you look at it from the perspective of towns and cities in Connecticut rely on property tax, for example, to pay for all their public services that they have to provide, trash and the roads and everything else. How, how did that come into it too? Sure, well, I guess you could say segregation makes sense from the people who are segregating. You know, uh, certainly there's a logic of why would you want to distance yourself from people um, by race, by nationality, by income. It's often in the advantage of the people with privilege to distance those who they don't, who they seem as undesirable, to distance them physically from where they are. I think what's interesting here is um, from the other chapters of the book I've written, we've talked about Mary, uh, chapters about federal lending and red line or race restrictive covenants in the 1930s. In this time period, there's also very overtly racial restrictions against uh, African-Americans and certainly uh, strong biases against immigrants and Jews and others from moving into different parts of West Hartford. What's striking about zoning, and while it's still with us today, is in the 1920s, by design, the inventors, the lawyers who invented the zoning language knew exactly what they were doing because it doesn't make any reference to the race or nationality of the individuals. It's an economic segregation tool, and therefore, all of our race-based housing laws um, from the civil rights era um, don't touch it directly. You know, this is why right in the state capitol, right now there's huge battles over zoning today. These began 100 years ago. You know, think about it. Happy zoneversary, Mary. It's almost 100 years since this it, began. Exactly, and I was thinking, I was reading that New York City, I think about 1916, 
enacts zoning and they are thinking about things like the fact that their roads are clogged with cars and that people are building skyscrapers now that block out the sun uh, down to the street level and you've got these masses of people and they also are looking at the way that light industry is moving around the lower part of Manhattan and what effect that has on both the property values and residential areas. But how does zoning sort of take off in these suburban towns? I kind of get it for New York City, but for these suburban towns, what is really pushing this? Yeah, so what we have is um, uh, West Hartford. It's it's one of the first communities in Connecticut. There's about se seven or eight others that uh, persuade the state legislature, which has the power to decide whether or not local communities can enact zoning laws. So uh, West Hartford um, persuades the state to give them a local zoning authority. And in the 1920s, during a, a real estate boom in West Hartford, West Hartford is laying the groundwork for what will happen, for who can move into certain neighborhoods based on income. Now, we clearly have the 1930s uh, depression and World War II, a huge slowdown in the housing economy. Um, but what we see in the 19, uh, late 1940s, early 1950s, we see a number of outlying suburban towns that are also trying to jump on the zoning bandwagon. They're realizing that their farmland, um, they want to exert some type of control over who can move there or how it would be divided up in different parts of land. And um, it's very tempting for them. Many of them adopt the logic of zoning and they apply sort of a mid 20th century mentality to it. Now remember West Hartford, they were just sort of saying the most restrictive zoning here in 1924 was minimum amount of land, 9,000 square feet per one family home. That's tiny compared to the standards that are coming up in the 40s and the 50s. I follow through the story here of communities such as Bloomfield and Simsbury and Avon that are creating zones that are one to two acres. That's 40 to 80,000 square feet of land per one family home. Now, at some points they're doing this saying, well, it's, it's for environmental reasons, or we don't have sewers or something like this yet. But it's very clear also that the towns are trying their best to sort of like control their future and limit to what types of families moving in, um, uh, higher income families, often recruiting families from the executive classes of, 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 of Hartford-based businesses. That's who they want to attract, and they want to attract them um, and their children to their school districts. And that certainly goes along with neighborhood associations in the 50s that were trying to discourage black families from moving in. But like you said, by the 60s, we're passing more fair housing laws, but that doesn't seem to have made a dent in this exclusionary zoning arena at all. Certainly people have been trying to make a dent. There's a number of uh, activist groups uh, in the 60s and 70s that are pushing against exclusionary zoning. It's not a, a, a recent phenomenon. This has been going on for decades. But the way the laws have been written about uh, civil rights laws, Fair Housing Act, those were clearly banning race-based government intervention, uh, government uh, exclusion in the, house, in the housing market. Um, and, and zoning has sneaked through because back in the 1920s, it was created um, without direct reference to race. I think what's interesting today is seeing the, the broadening, uh, widening coalition of, of activists uh, in Connecticut that I see that are saying, we have such a housing crisis today. We are far behind most other states in creating new affordable housing that so many residents, especially people's um, uh, younger generations uh, who maybe have gone to school here, gone to college here, can't afford to live here. And it's making people wonder, what's the future of Connecticut? If our restrictions are so tight, 
how do we actually make opportunities for people to happen? So I'm intrigued by seeing coalitions that are coming together in the past uh, five to 10 years that weren't there uh, in earlier decades, uh, trying to uh, uh, change laws to make it less restrictive. Now, I know you've got a lot of chapters uh, in on the line, which is a really innovative format. It's, it's actually a digital book. How does that actually work? You're adding to it constantly? Whenever I get a chance, yes. <laughs> My students and I at Trinity College have worked on different pieces of this story, on the schooling side, on the housing side, on other types of, um, of ways that we have uh, carved ourselves up into 169 separate municipalities here in Connecticut. And because a large part of what we're doing is not just trying to write a story, but trying to actually create the maps that show the lines that are not visible at first glance unless you're looking for them. And also doing oral history interviews and video interviews with um, activists and ordinary families that have tried to cross over these lines or change these lines. My students and I often pull together uh, maybe a piece of a chapter here, a piece of a chapter there. I'll be the first to admit, Mary, I am not the fastest writer with this book. That's why I wanted to put it online, and I'm working with a, a, a publisher, an open access publisher, that uh, gave me a contract that allows me to share it openly online, because even though the book's not finished yet, and that's on me, the story is out there. People are finding the story, they're reaching out to me, uh, Connecticut Explored encouraged me to um, uh, write this piece for them, and uh, it's, it's nice to uh, have recognition from others. It's, it's an exciting way to share a story, even if I'm not quite done telling it yet. What surprises the students? Because I know they've worked on restrictive covenants, they've worked on redlining with you, they're working on zoning. What do they find surprising? I think my students are surprised by a lot of things because when you're 18 and 19 and 20 years old, um, you're starting sometimes to realize uh, how things are in the world. I think I've been struck by a number of people, um, either my students or even just people who maybe grew up in Connecticut as um, young adults, um, maybe went away for college, maybe came back to the area, and they're seeing uh, cities and suburbs with fresh eyes. They, I think, will plainly say, I never saw how segregated we are by race and income until I got away and came back and started to see how interstate highways have chopped up the metropolitan Hartford area, how our school systems are quite divided and um, uh, in people's struggles to make uh, magnet schools or open choice programs to try to bridge those divides are still underway. I think I'm intrigued and I'm, I'm thrilled whenever people look at Connecticut with fresh eyes and say, it hasn't always been this way. It didn't happen naturally. We in Connecticut, effectively, are we in our government and our and our our, our our real estate interests, we engineered Connecticut to way the look at, to make it look the way it does now. That actually gives you hope because if you realize how much human effort went into shaping Connecticut to make it look like this, then it sort of suggests that we can actually change it in the future. And what are the next pieces of the story that you're going to work on? I know the uh, the online version says you're going to be kind of expanding into some of uh, Hartford's other inner suburbs like Bloomfield. What's coming up? Yeah, I've got lots of uh, pieces I've been trying to write over the years or are written that were conference papers or small pieces that were done with students. And I'm, basically, I need to sew them together. I think what's been challenging for me on this is I'd love it to be a more coherent narrative across the entire book. And I'm realizing that just trying to get several different people's stories out there all under the same book cover on the same website on the line.trincal.edu, 
that's what I need to do. I don't think they're, I don't, I've been trying to come up with the one story that brings it all together. And I think I'm realizing it's a multitude of stories about schooling and housing and how we came to the way we are today. For more about Jack's work, go to his website at onthelinetrincall.edu to read his feature story on exclusionary zoning published in our spring 2023 issue. Go to connecticutexplore.org, ctexplore.org, and you'll also be able to find his feature article on redlining in Connecticut. Connecticut Explored, the nonprofit organization that publishes Connecticut Explored magazine, announced its 20 for 20 Innovation in Connecticut History series, highlighting 20 game changers whose work is advancing the study, interpretation, and dissemination of Connecticut history. The initiative, funded by Connecticut Humanities and sponsored by Trinity College, is a centerpiece of Connecticut Explored's year-long celebration of our 20th anniversary. Subscribe at ctexplore.org. Fresh episodes of Grading the Nutmeg are brought to you every two weeks with support from our listeners. You can help us continue to produce the podcast by donating directly to Grading the Nutmeg on the Connecticut Explored website at ctexplore.org. Click the donate button at the top, then look for the Grading the Nutmeg donation link at the bottom. Donations in any amount are greatly appreciated. We thank you. This episode of Grading the Nutmeg was produced by Mary Donahue and engineered by Patrick O'Sullivan at High Wattage Media. I'm Mary Donahue for Grading the Nutmeg. Join us in two weeks for our next episode.